Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Dr. Carol Gomez Summerhays. Dr. Summerhays was the 152nd and fourth female president of the American Dental Association. She's the past president of the California Dental Association, the largest dental association in the U.S. Currently, she serves as counselor for the FDI World Federation of Dentists and chaired of the Board of Counselors for the Austral School of Dentistry at USC. After earning her bachelor's in biology from the University of San Francisco, she attended the Austral School of Dentistry at the University of Southern California on a full scholarship through the Armed Forces Health Professions Program, where she earned her doctorate of dental surgery. Following graduation from USC, she served four years of active duty as a dental officer in the US Navy. Her family has four generations of military service and she, is, she was in full-time practice for 32 years in San Diego. Dr. Summerhays is a fellow of the American College of Dentists, the International College of Dentists, Pierre Bouchard Academy, Academy of Dentistry International, and the Academy of General Dentistry. She has earned a mastership in the Academy of General Dentistry and an AGD Lifelong Learning and Service Recognition Award. National awards include Pierre Fouchard Gold Medal, the Lucy Hobbs Award from the American Association of Women Dentists, and the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. She is the recipient of the University of Southern California Alumni Merit Award, and she has been honored by the Salvation Army Portraits and Philanthropy and by the Girl Scouts of America, one of San Diego's 10 cool women. Dr. Summer Hayes and her husband Somas have been married for 37 years and have two sons. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Dr. Carol Gomez Summer Hayes. Carol, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. I can't wait to share you with the audience. So many of our women know who you are, of course, but many of them don't. So I'm really excited to share them with you and and you with them. So without any further ado, if you could just share with us your story, how you got into dentistry, and then we'll take it from there. So I started university as a pre-med student. I thought from the time I was a teenager that it would be good to sort of devote my career toward helping people become healthier. And a lot of that was because of seeing the poverty in the Philippines, which is where my parents, my father came from. It was so shocking to me. And I always felt that I was so fortunate to be in this country. And so if I could do something to give back to make things better, that's what I was going to do. So I started university with that intention, but after the first semester, I went to Mexico to study uh, just a summer program because I had the opportunity. And while I was there, I visited their dental school in Mexico City with some friends and it was mostly women. So I thought this is interesting. And they they seemed to be very happy with their choice and, and were showing me things that they were doing. So I started to look more into dentistry and then came back to the U.S. and changed my major. So really, that was a huge turning point for me. But 
it was a difficult decision because my father coming from the Philippines just felt that being a physician was number one. Mm -hmm. So he was very disappointed when I graduated as a dentist. And the same thing happened with the head of the biology department at the university. In fact, the day before I graduated, he called me into his office and he says, Carol, you're making a huge mistake. You should be going into medicine. So he goes on to say, you're taking the path of least resistance by going into dentistry. And I had accepted a full scholarship to the University of Southern California through the, the Navy, the Armed Forces Health Profession Scholarship. So he said, you're, you're taking the, the easy road. So I carried that doubt with me for at least 10 years that I had made a mistake, that I really should have gone to medical school, that I could still go to medical school. And um, it did, it took a long time to realize, no, this was absolutely the right decision for me. Mm -hmm. So how long did you spend four years in the Navy? Yes, yes. And where were you stationed? Were you stationed? I was lucky. So in those years, there were very few women that were Navy dentists, uh, very few women that were Navy officers. So I was stationed in San Diego and I was lucky. I came in a year where three women came in together and they were all three very confident. So prior to that, there had only been about one, I think it was just one female. So it was extremely difficult for her in, in the Navy in San Diego. I think she was one out of 178 dentists at the time. So uh, even then it was very different. There, nothing was available for female officers. We had no locker room. So we decided, well, we're going to convert this small women's bathroom into the women's locker room because the enlisted women didn't want us in their locker room. So we just had to make do with everything. We didn't even have uniforms to sit <laughs> to practice in. It was, we had just uh, our dress blues that had pants. And at that time there was nothing else. So we actually had to, to make some stuff up along the way until they had developed uniforms, the khaki uniform and white uniform. So it was very different. Wow. Isn't that interesting? So do you mind me asking when that was? Sure. I graduated in 1978. It was a long time ago. Yeah, but 78. So I find it interesting that even like, let's say 76, 78, I mean, you know, by then, so I, I just finished, um, well, I'm not finished yet because it's a 13 hour book. I'm listening to In My Own Words by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, we're talking, she's talking about the equal pay for yes. men and women, which was signed in 68, I believe. And, you know, and I think, oh my gosh, we're still not even there yet. Isn't that incredible? I mean, we're still not even there yet. We're not even close. So while I was president uh, of the American Dental Association and, and even as president-elect, we started to have some information that women were still not earning as much as men, uh, male dentists. And it really surprised me that even in the late 90s, that women were only earning about 50% of what a male dentist would earn. And today it's still significantly less. I, it's somewhere in the range of 28% to 30% less. So we were lucky that we were able to do a little bit of research on that to try to understand why there was a difference, but still adjusting for the number of hours worked, which is pretty close between uh, male and female dentists. 
there's still a gap, a, a, an earnings gap, and more research needs to be done. We don't know if it's because more women are employees. Uh, are they not negotiating for themselves? Is it in the dental practice where maybe the financial aspect isn't as important or do they need more, um, more practice management skills? So there's still a gap and we need to work to continue that. But when you own your own practice, it's, you can't blame anyone else about that. And in retrospect, when I first started a study group in the late 80s, I was shocked to, to find out that I was earning about 50% of what all the other members of the study group were was earning. I did never attributed it to being a female. I just thought, okay, I am missing something here and, and it's on me to learn. So I hired a consultant and within a year, I was up at the same level as everyone else. So I do think it's really important to work with consultants and learn more about practice management and, and sort of take, take control of your practice. Totally agree. Couldn't agree more. So let's go back a little bit. And I want to come back and go forward into your ADA career. But let's go back first. So you went to the Navy, you practiced there for four years. And then when you graduated, you start, did you start a practice from scratch or did you buy a practice? No, I started a practice from scratch. So it was not the best time in the world to start a practice because it was in the early 80s when we had really high inflation. Do you recall back? I, when I convey this story to students, I think they go into shock because at that time I asked my CPA, what should I do? Shall I take a, a fixed interest rate or should I take a floating? And he said, well, you know, it could go down. I think it was 9% at the time, which within six months, it was over 20%. I thought it was, I truly, I was thought it was going to go bankrupt if I didn't come up with something because patients weren't coming in and we had to think of every way just to stay in business. And a big part of that was to start seeing a lot of uh, Medi-Cal for um, patients that had some coverage and just to get through it. So it was, it was a really challenging time, but we moved, I was able to move through that. Well, exactly. And so I, I think that that's important to, to highlight too, because quite honestly, we are going to have ups and downs in our careers, right? And, you know, I told the students uh, recently that, you know, quite honestly, they were, they were kind of lucky in a way that they were still in school when COVID hit, because at least, you know, they were kind of protected and secluded away from all the impact that this was having on private practices. We have a young alumni that just graduated a few years ago and she lost everything. And it just, it brought me to tears because I just was so sad at the impact that this had on her, you know, both financially and professionally, she was just getting there and she just couldn't hold on. So it's really, it's really disappointing. I, I think that, you know, one of the key takeaways from all of this is cash is king. So, you know, be thoughtful about your spending and be thoughtful about, you know, what it is that, that goes out every month and your overhead expenses, because you just don't know. Uh, you just don't know. Rainy day funds are really important. No, you don't. And I had a similar problem when I had just gotten married to my, my current husband and I was starting a new practice, another new practice. So I actually started three practices in my first five years. 
Did you really? I did. I started one practice with partners, which one of them was a close friend. One of them was an ex-husband who became an ex-husband. So that didn't work out too well. I, I, it, it, so we had to break up that partnership and my, my ex-husband took that over. So I set up another practice because of the difficulty and you know, the economic environment. I set one up that was specifically for uh, immigrants from Vietnam. So I had a friend who was a Vietnamese physician and she said, Carol, why don't you come over and set up a practice in our building next to our medical practice because we don't have any Vietnamese dentists yet. So that was the second practice and that was very busy because a lot of the immigrants had really not had any dental care, some never in their lives. And so we were really busy. And then I set up my third practice was just after I, well, during my new marriage uh, to my current husband. And I unfortunately had a contractor who had been referred to me by a dental supply rep and who I trusted completely. And that turned out to be a huge a mistake because he was using the money for drugs and I was young. I didn't really know how do I, you know, end this contract with this person. And I just thought, well, you know, the contract date ends on this day. And since he hasn't done anything, I'm free to just get somebody else to take over. Well, that wasn't the case. So he turned around and sued me. So he, he found an attorney that would um, sue me on a contingency basis. So I learned a lesson. I should have talked to an attorney prior to that, but I just thought I was going to lose everything. And at the same time, I found out that I was pregnant with my first child. So all of this is going on. And it had it not been for my family and that I was going to have another child, I think I would have been hugely depressed. So fortunately, we had to, uh, we had my husband's income to help get us through these early years. And in a lot of ways, I felt that I was lucky to have it happen to me early. That, you know, I have all these other years to overcome it, which I did. And uh, I didn't take an income, a salary for a long time in, in my practice because I didn't want to accumulate any more debt than we had to. And, and I have to say that I, eventually, you know, built the practice of my dreams. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So now do you still have, how many practices do you have now still? I don't have any practices. So I stopped, yeah, I had, I stopped practicing um, my last year as a trustee at the ADA, but I had already been in in full-time clinical practice for 36 years. So I, I thought, well, that's enough, but yeah. (laughs) I was actually the having problems with my neck and my back and my left arm. So yeah, you, you mentioned that earlier. So let's talk a little bit about that. Tell me, tell me what, what, what happened. And I know you're doing a research project and I'd like to highlight it today so that we can get people responding to this and get the information out there so that you can gather it. So tell me, tell me what happened and, and what do you think is the precipitating factor? Well, I think early in my career, I already started to experience neck problems and it had to go to the way I was working. I, was, I wasn't sitting properly and, and so I would end up having to get a, a special 
clinical chair so I could support my left arm and, and try to sit more upright. So, but I, I would say that on and off throughout my career, I would have things that were bothering me. But after 36 years, I, I was having severe neck pain and I had had little bone spurs in my right arm, which are extremely painful. They were calcifications that one day I, I was traveling. I went to reach for uh, reach up to get my suitcase and I couldn't raise my arm. And it turned out I saw the x-ray with little calcifications that the physician said were because of so many years of micro micro movements on the right arm. But toward the end, my left arm, and I believe it's because of holding the cheek, a patient's cheek back with your, because I'm right-handed holding it back constantly, putting pressure there. By the time I sold my practice, I had no feeling in my left arm. Um, it was just shooting pains. And, and I thought, well, that's it. Am I going to live with this for the rest of my life? So luckily within four months, I started to get my feeling back and now I have all my feeling back again. So, so the, it was the repetitive piece. It is. It's really important for women to be aware of what's happening. I think that there is a lack of awareness as I, I was because we were pretty much expected to adapt to the clinics that we were in. So I didn't have any choice when I was in the Navy. I got what I got to work in. And the same thing at dental school. It's it's whatever is there, you have to adapt. And, and often you have to go into very strange um, positions. One of the comments I've gotten back is the patient dental chair being uh, too high for any, for a, especially if you're a petite woman and you're trying to sit properly with your feet flat on the ground. And then if the patient chair doesn't drop enough, then you have to raise your chair up or stand up. It's just a lot of things like that. Not to mention when you're pregnant and trying to practice and then you're having to bend over more. So, so there are a lot of issues for women practitioners that have not been studied and they haven't been addressed. And so if we can focus more on that and if women can become more aware of, you know, where is the difficulty? I'm not trying to make any problems for anyone, but, but to, to see what it is that's affecting them and try to find other ways to alleviate um, the discomfort, it will be helpful. But I've heard from so many women that when they brought it up to a manufacturer, they're just ignored. Of course you know, bring it up in the clinic. And, and especially when, when you were one of the first women, when, when I was in, in school, there were very, there were only five women dental students in the classes ahead of us in the wow. whole school. Now, how many were in your class? We had 18. So it, that was a big shock to them, but still, you know, you feel so fortunate to be there that you don't want to complain and you don't want to, you know, rock the boat so to speak. And, and I think that, that we just went with it. And then when you're younger, you're, it's a little bit easier, but it's really important if you want to have a happy, long career that, that, that you're more aware of what the, the problem is. Same thing with instruments, you know, that it, the inability to grasp them or torque them, especially oral surgery instruments is a problem for women. And, you know, we don't have the upper body strength that men do too. So, so I believe that we need to really increase awareness for the manufacturers and, and women, but really all employers, all dentists, because the women that are graduating now are gonna be the purchases of their practices or they're gonna be the new associates. And it's gonna be difficult for them to come into a practice when it, it's not 
possible for them to practice it the best way that they can ergonomically. Right, right. I think that, you know, the, the reason why I never had a problem with that when I was practicing was two things. One, because I was a hygienist first, one of the things that Forsyth was really good at was you could not treat a patient unless your feet were flat on the floor, your back was straight, and your legs were parallel, uh, you know, to the floor. So, you know, I learned very early on that, that that was critically important. And so when I was in the clinic, I would always walk around and say, okay, you're not, you're bending over way too much. You're going to have problems with your back before you're, you know, you're 30. So I was very aware of that. And secondarily, the other thing that I learned to do in hygiene school was I learned to write my name upside down and backwards in a mirror. And that helps our brain yes. with eye-hand eye coordination when we are in the mouth. So I have always been able to wor work with very relaxed shoulders and look in a mirror and work because I learned very early how to do that. So when I would see patient, uh, students struggling with that, I would teach them how to do that. I would teach them just take a mirror and, and try to write your name upside down and backwards in the mirror. And it helps them to coordinate themselves. Much, yes, much. rather than bending over and looking. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then I, I think too, when, when I started my practice from scratch, the one thing that I did do is I went to Sullivan Shine and I actually worked in the chairs because I wanted to make sure those chairs went mm -hmm. all the way down. Yes. And that my chair could be flat on the ground where my feet were flat so that I could be in the right position. So that might be some recommendations that you could make. I don't know. I know you, you're doing a survey. We'll get the survey out and try to get it as, as much publicity as possible. But at the same time, you know, it may be that that would be a good recommendation is to test all the equipment before you buy it. Because I do think that there's some smaller chairs, maybe pedo chairs might be better for us than, you know, uh, full-blown uh, regular chairs. I don't know. You know, and, and our, our patient sizes are different too. So we have to accommodate all that. But, but it may be that pedo chairs fit our bodies better. I, I believe there are chairs out there. And it's important that it's just not a female issue that it's that all the clinicians look at it, especially as the, there's an increased number of women coming into um, practice. And if they're going to be associates or partners, then it has to be able to accommodate you know, the, the, the new clinicians. Also, it's not just women. There are a lot of Asian dentists who are smaller than the average American male. So I, I didn't want it to make it specifically a women's issue. I just think that there's more importance for manufacturers to look at this and a greater uh, need for awareness in the design of a clinic so you can accommodate people of all sizes. You know, because you're going to have someone who's six, three, and then you're going to have someone who's five feet. Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh my gosh. Great point. Really great point. Otherwise we won't get change. You know, if it's only for women, we won't get change. But if you show them the bigger picture and then also dental hygienist is important for them. So Absolutely. you had a really outstanding education at Forsyth. 
but I hear of hygienists that have already had neck surgeries. I had hygienists that had carpal tunnel within, um, within a few years of just starting practice. So everyone doesn't have that level. And I think we really need to reinforce the importance of ergonomics. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. That's, that's really great. So thank you for sharing that. And we'll get that information out to as many people as we can. Are you uh, doing a, an official survey that is going out to like any Facebook groups or anything that we can help support you with? Not at this moment. I'm, I'm still in that initial phase and it really started out with the uh, CRA through uh, the uh, Clinical Research Associates with Gordon Christensen. So I've joined them as, a, uh, as one of the authors and he asked me to take a look at this. And I thought, well, you know, where do I start? So we're at that initial phase of, of who are we gonna survey? But I think that, that I can expand on that to a full article on ergonomics in dental practice. Maybe we should team up on that. That would be a really great article to get out. I think that we, as I started to read more and more and the lack of information out there and the lack of awareness by practitioners, it's everyone suffers in, in dentistry from ergonomics, men and women, but women are substantially higher than men. So I, I, it's an important issue that we need to look at. I, I agree. I think long-term we do have some major side effects from the profession. And I, I think maybe even more so you know, the hunchback and the neck problems that many of our older counterparts had. I think fondly of Dr. Tillman, who was a professor at Tufts and, and you know, all the years of having a stand-up chair and her bending over, she, she got the kink in her neck. And, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing you can do about it. Once it starts, the kyphosis just takes over. So Exactly. Well, and, and another issue, which I think that we're not addressing is a loss of hearing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. It didn't strike me until my husband said one evening, he goes, you know, there's something I've noticed about dentists, that they don't look you in the eye when they're talking, they always have their head turned. And I said, it's because they can't hear you. You know, these were older dentists. And if you observe older dentists, you'll see that they turn either their head right or left, depending on which is the best ear. Isn't that interesting? Yes. And it's something that we have not addressed. I know for myself, my hearing is not so great in my left ear. And it's something that we need to change starting in dental school somehow to, you know, so that we, or maybe the hand pieces don't have that, such a high pitch anymore, but I, I think it is something worth looking into as well. Lots of things to do. Excellent. So when you got into the profession of dentistry, what do you think was the single best piece of advice that you received? And it could be about dentistry, but it could be about life. So what's, what do you think is the single best piece of advice that you've received? Well, even before I was um, starting in dentistry, I have to say my, it was my father and the way he brought me up because he was the eternal optimist and he believed that anything was possible in this country. So from as long as I can remember, he would tell me, you know, we're, you're go, go to the best schools. He actually wanted me to go to Oxford for some reason, because that's what he wanted to do. But he said in, in this country, because he had immigrated from the Philippines and he could see that in this country, you had the opportunity to do anything that you wanted. He, he truly believed that anything was possible. The other thing he'd say is there's always room at the top. 
there's always room at the top. And, you know, you think, well, that's a long way up there, but he, he just really believed it. So I think that's what gave me confidence in what I was doing from a young age. Uh, my mother always said, just, you have to really study hard. She was more practical, you know, be sure that you're getting the best grades you can. But my father always said, there's, you can do anything, you know, you, you just have to decide what you want to do and you can, you can do anything, be anything. And I'm sure that comes back to you all the time in your career. It does, because I just uh, always had that sense of confidence, which luckily it worked out because I did, when I applied to dental school, I couldn't even imagine that I wouldn't be accepted. And today I probably wouldn't be accepted. You know, it's so competitive now with, with the, the, the students are being accepted, but I, I had no plan B. I just was so confident. So that would have really shaken me. But, but yes, I've always had that carry, still carry that with, with me. So let's talk a little bit about confidence. So it sounds like that, that from a very early age, your dad and mom, your parent, both instill confidence in you and that you never really had to worry too much about confidence. No, I, and one of the things that I observed in dental school, as soon as I got there, was that some of my classmates that did not have confidence and actually they were male classmates that didn't have confidence then they they attracted not the kind of attention you wanted from your teachers so i thought okay that's it i'm even if i i'm not exactly sure how i'm going to do something i'm not going to exhibit you know a lack of confidence you just have to address it in a different way so i look at other ways of doing it and later in life it, actually toward the time that i was running for office there was a YouTube of, I think her name was, was it Amy Cuddy, who said, fake it till you make it. I love that. It helped me so much because so often you're going into a situation where, you know, you don't necessarily have the confidence that you need. And she just talked about different ways that you could make yourself feel more confident before you walk in to do something. I loved it. So I highly recommend that for everyone. I've read the but I've watched the YouTube, her YouTube video. Um, it was a TED talk. And I think that's so true. You know, no matter what, you just, it's going to work. You know, you're going to be successful. The failure is not an option. It's just off the table. Failure is not an option. And failure is not an option. So that's the first thing you have to tell yourself is that, and I was surprised to hear that from some younger dentists, I guess they, I would say they were Gen Xers that we were just talking in a, in a different form, we were at a board meeting and, and we were talking about what is your greatest fear? And one of them said, failure. And I thought, no, failure is not an option, no matter what, it's not an option. So uh, that was one um, bit of advice that, that really helped me, especially for what I feared. And my biggest fear was public speaking. I loved being involved in in organizational associations, uh, first in California Dental Association. And I loved being appointed. I loved doing the work, but I hated public speaking. It just was something that I wasn't interested in. I might, you know, I could be standing in front of a group and just black out. So it took me a while to overcome that fear. And that would have been the stopping point for me when, uh, in fact, there's a story, the executive director had come to me when I was chair of our, our uh, annual meetings, our scientific sessions in California. And he said, Carol, I want you to consider making a run for the executive committee 
uh, California Dental Association. <laughs> and I just, I just took one look at him and I said, you know, I don't mind the work, but I hate public speaking. And he said, that's okay. You only have to make one speech when you accept <laughs> so, I said no, you not really. But at um, that moment in time, that you'd be making several speeches then. Yeah, because you just have to make your acceptance speech, and you're fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. So I was so afraid of public speaking that even in meetings, that where I had to go up in front of the group at the California Dental Association, I'd be making a presentation, my hand would shake so hard that I had to hold it with my other hand when I took a sip of water in front of everyone. And luckily they didn't notice, but I, it, it just terrified me. And uh, over time though, with practice, because you have to go up and do something, you start to lose the fear and the more practice you have, then it makes it easier. But even now, if I, if I haven't been making any presentations or been in front of a crowd for a while, if I have to get up, then my heart starts pounding and I have to go through that whole thing and, and do the exercises of fake it till you make it and just go out there. What is it? A superwoman up. pose or something? I, I think. Yes. Yes. And then you be like victory. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Superwoman pose and, and you just get back there and you, you know, you just strut your stuff. I, it really helps. It really helps. It does. It so does. I highly recommend that. Good, good, good. And so the same thing in dental school, I, I, these, the, the dental students today are so bright and they, they, they need to build that confidence for themselves. I've met women who had so many degrees and uh, were asking about how can they get involved in their, you know, in their local dental society. And I said, you know, you have more degrees than most of the guys in there. You should not be afraid. Just go in there and, you know, and start talking and say hi. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Easier. And we both know it's easier said than done. Right. Yes. Yes. But you just kind of have to put yourself out there. I think that by smiling and just being friendly and being yourself, that eventually a lot of times that if, if you feel as though you're being ignored in a group, it's not that it's because you're a woman or, or you're new. It's just that sometimes at those meetings, people gravitate to who they know because they haven't seen them in a long time. And I, I found myself doing that instead of focusing on new people and welcoming them in the group. And so you, it's just, don't take it personally. Yeah. I think that's a great piece of advice. I think that anytime you, you see somebody new that comes into a crowd, if you can at all, at all possible, it's worthwhile to go up to them and reassure them by saying, hi, my name's Carol. My name's MJ, you know, welcome. It's so nice to see you. Where are you from? You know, and start the conversation because I too remember those days when it was really uncomfortable when I first, you know, graduated from dental school, you know, I was much older when I graduated. So, you know, I, I knew organized dentistry. I wanted to become involved, but oh my gosh, I remember the days of going to these meetings and not knowing a single person. And it's hard. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable. And you know, there's, there are cliques of people that get together and, you know, you don't, you want to be inclusive and invite people in. So good piece of advice, really good piece of advice. And something that would help would be if you can find someone who will be your champion, who will take you in and sort of take you by the hand and start 
introducing you to people before you even get to the meeting. If you can find a mentor or champion that will take you around, it helps a lot. Absolutely. And I don't think any one of us that have been around for a long time would ever say no to that. I mean, you know, we all we all are more than willing. It's a little bit different now in this digital world and, and virtual meetings to be able to do that. And but I think most people are comfortable now too doing digital meetings and meeting that way. But quite honestly, the relationship building is is missing, I think. And I think that's going to affect us overall over time. It's very different. It's very flat. The other comment that I've heard from young dentists, young female dentists in particular, is that when they go out into practice, their patients are surprised that they're the dentist because they look so young. And I had that experience too when I was in the Navy. It's a good thing to look young, especially as you get older, you want to look younger. But when you first come out of practice and you, you look so young, it was shaking their confidence a little bit. And I would say, just make it a joke. So in the Navy, I would come, I would come in and I'd have my officer uniform on and I'd start to work on one of the young, um, young male patients. And they would look at my male assistant thinking he was a dentist. And I said, well, I'm the dentist, but if you want him to work on you, that's fine. And just laugh it off because you have to be confident. You know what you know, and you just have to, you know, make them feel comfortable. And, and it is important to, to express your confidence in what you're doing and, and not let it worry you. Absolutely. And you know what? You just have to take that first step, right? Yes. All that is necessary. Okay, you may not know 100% of exactly what you're going to do from this moment to the next five minutes, but taking the first steps helps you to define what it is that you have to, right? Yes, yes. And women have an advantage that we're beginning to see in practice where women listen more to their patients and patients perceive that. Uh, I think that there's better communication. So we need to play to our strengths and be confident, you know, let them know that you're, that you're the doctor. Absolutely. Totally agree with you. So who do you think has had the biggest impact on your life? Is there a single person, group of people? In my professional career, the person who really impacted my life as far as being involved in organized dentistry was Dr. Clifton Dummett. So he has now passed away, but he was my mentor from the time I was in dental school until he passed away. Oh gosh, I think it's about 10 years now. And he was a, actually a black professor from British Guiana. And we started to, to develop a friendship because he was a, an editor and an author. And I was the editor of our first uh, dental school newspaper. And we had uh, we shared similar values and he just stayed in touch with me after I got out of school. He'd call me up every few months when I was in the Navy and after the Navy. And he'd just say, well, I'm just checking to see how you're doing and how's the family. And when I finally got out of the Navy, he said, well, now that you're out of the Navy, I want you to get involved with your you know, local dental society. So um, it was really because of him that isn't that nice that I was involved. Now, I do want to bring up a story that actually almost stopped my involvement in organized dentistry and it and and it was because of being a woman. So I was on the, the local dental society board and then I got pregnant. So I was asked 
exactly that point in time if I would consider moving up the ladder. And I said, no, I can't because, you know, I just got pregnant <laughs> and I'm going to have this baby and, and I can't make that commitment now. And rather than allowing me to stay on the board, they just kicked me off. Really? Yeah. I was shocked because I felt that I was doing a good job. Well, well, obviously, because they asked me to move up the ladder and there was no communication from the board or the president. I was just off and I did not come back to organized dentistry, you know, the tripartite of the ADA for 10 years. I just said, okay, that's it for me then. I, so I got involved with the Academy of General Dentistry. I did local fundraisers for other organizations like American Cancer Society, uh, things that would work with me and my family, but I was never going back. So Dr. Dubbett, who was keeping in touch with me said, you know, it's really time for you to go back and get involved again with the California Dental Association. So he even wrote a letter on my behalf to do that. So I went back and I started following my passion, which was continuing education and got involved in that at the local dental society. And, and that's how I moved up to the state. So I got to the state level and it was still meeting planning, CE, which I loved, and also community programs. And then he said, you know, I want you to consider moving up more. <laughs> And I, you know, I really didn't know what he, he meant, but he, he explained, no, you, you care about you know, helping underserved communities. You know, you can, I want you to consider moving up to eventually becoming president of California Dental Association, which was, I thought, insane. That's crazy. I never even thought about that before that, you know, nor did I feel like I had the experience. But um, once I was elected, he, he was getting quite old and he said, okay, Carol, there's one more after California Dental Association. And I thought, what a big jump from one more, which he meant president of the ADA, which was just insane. I thought I had not even gotten through my year at CDA and he passed away uh, once I became trustee. So I did become trustee for, for American Dental Association. And I thought, okay, pressure's off. Dr. Dummett's gone. But he was always right here saying he was, I'm sure he was. And so I just am sorry that neither my mentor, Dr. Dummett, or my parents, neither one of my parents were alive at the point that I became an officer at the president of CDA and ADA. So I, that would make me sad, but then I thought, well, no, they know. So of course, of course, of course. He, he Had it not been for him, I don't think that this would have necessarily been the path that I would take. So let's, let's switch a little bit to that because you, you didn't get into that piece of your career after talking about your uh, practice portion, you know, you actually went through all the ranks in the organized dentistry, all the way from CDA up to the American Dental Association presidency. You did follow um, Maxine, which was something we were all so excited about to have two female ADA presidents following one another. Uh, we actually, I know you know this, in Massachusetts have three female dentists yes. following each other. So we're really excited about that. But we were not the first state. Apparently, there was other states that have done the three before us. So, But very exciting nonetheless, because when you're only the fourth, I'm the fourth female dentist in the Mass Dental Society history. 
to think that the third, fourth, and fifth are just coming up in a hundred year history is pretty amazing, isn't it? Like, like, don't you want to shake your head and say, okay, why? But it, it nonetheless, it is what it is. So tell us a little bit about your journey and, and some, maybe some of the, you know, things that you're really happy about, the things that you accomplished and maybe some challenges along the way. Are we talking about clinically, professionally? No, 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 no. Specifically in the board, in the process, in the politics, specifically in the, in the process of becoming the ADA president. Well, what happens is the more you become involved, the more you learn about the, about the value of organized dentistry and it, it envelops you, you, you know, you, you begin to realize uh, what you can accomplish by helping make policy changes at a state level or a national level. Also how you can improve the organization when you look and see, you know, where, you know, what are some weaknesses and it takes a while of being there to say, this doesn't make any sense. Why, why are we doing this? And it's because it's always been done that way. So why didn't anyone challenge the status quo? That is very important. I mean, just very simple things. So for instance, uh, you want to have continuity among your officers and you want everyone to sort of be in the loop as you're moving up. But then once you become president, also your president-elect should know everything that you know, so you have continuity. Well, in my state dental association, it was always the, the president was separate. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me. We need the, to bring the president-elect in. Every time I have a call with you or the executive director, which was a weekly call, I said, the president-elect needs to be there. It just seems like such a, a, an obvious thing, but it wasn't being done. And I think that helped improve uh, communication a lot more because you, you, they have to know as they transition and they can do a better, uh, a better job. The same thing was uh, the case of the American Dental Association. So you'd have the president and the president would be separate, but the president-elect wasn't brought along. And so we implemented that the year I became president, I said, oh no, actually, I think we implemented it maybe when Maxine was president, Scott, because I asked her, I said, you know, it would be really helpful if I can be in on the call so I, I know what's, what's going on. And that was really, really great. The other thing that hadn't been done before was that even though we had a strategic plan from president to president, one would go in this direction, one would go in that direction, and there was a continuity. And if you've been in that position at any at a state, state level, national level, it takes more than a year to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish in, in big change. For instance, licensure, dental licensure. It takes, people have been asking why we haven't changed it for years. So the disadvantage of only having a, a year as president is that you cannot affect that change. You have to, to bring your whole board along. You have to be sure that the president elect after you is, is you know, on the same page and Luckily, by working with Maxine, I said, Maxine, what, as president, what would you like to accomplish in this next year? How can I support you in the things that you want to do? And then she discussed what she wanted. And I said, these are things that I think are important. One of them being licensure. And there were some other issues. We said, do you feel comfortable if we can start to put that in, you know, put that in, in play? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we did that was very different because when I spoke to previous 
ADA presidents. I asked them if they had worked together as a team in that regard, where you're building forward uh, because time was so short. And, you know, things can get derailed a few, a few years later if that president isn't on the same page. It, it, then you go backwards again, which I think backwards, I would say. But, um, and we don't have that extra year of being able to be um, vice president, president, elect and president, which certainly would help you know, or if you had uh, an extension of time. So that's something I learned at every level, including the World Federation of Dentists. They still do not work together, president and president-elect as they should. So that's something I hope that we can change up at the global level as well. It's just, but the more you do, the more you realize, well, I think I can make a change. Even if there's slight changes, little slight changes can make a huge difference. And, well, it's the ripple effect, right? Or the but what they call the butterfly effect. You know, one small little, you know, flap of a wing actually can create a tornado. Yes, yes. And you don't realize that uh, beyond, but you do have to have an idea of what is it? Why, why do you want to have this position? Mm -hmm. and, and too often people just want to have the position for position state, you know, and, and sake. And I, and that is absolutely the wrong reason to take an office. You, you really have to have an idea of what you want to accomplish. It's important in everything. You need to know your why, right? Yes, absolutely. Another great book, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, start with why. It all starts with why that's the title of it. And it's so true. It, it is so true. It guides you for everything. Yes, yes, that's a, it's a great book. And that's exactly right. If you don't know why you're doing something. Right. And when we had failures in terms of policy at the American Dental Association you know, with resolutions, if you step back and you look, it's because we didn't all agree on what the problem was. And if you don't all agree on what the problem is, then you can't have a solution. So you have to understand why it's, it's very important. I agree. Well, that's, that's great advice. So thank you for that. Um, did you find when you and Maxine were going through that it was sometimes difficult being the only females in the room? You know, I know there are others, but, you know, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because, you know, it still remains a little bit of an issue. I think it, it remains a huge issue, especially at the national level. So uh, it's so nice to see women at the state level, but then we still need to encourage women to, to go to the national level. At the point that I was in my fourth year as trustee, I was the only woman out of 17 trustees. So I'd say, I think I'm an endangered species here. Maxine was, our, was president-elect and I was, I was the only female trustee. So when we were when we were President, president-elect, there were lots of comments about there's too much estrogen in the room by the men. Yes, yes. And I would say, no, there's a lack of estrogen at this age, but you know, you have to make it. And not enough uh, estrogen at the table. You have to make a joke out of it, but you know, that was the comment around the room, just, just far too much estrogen here, which means, you know, just too many women. And the other uh, comment that came up before I was elected was, well, if Maxine fails, then you're not going to get elected because, you know, if one woman fails, all women fail, which is just ridiculous. Absolutely. We ignore that. Um, there was concerns about, you know, political concerns. And Maxine brought up, she goes, you know, I know you're going to run next year. Is your 
district not going to support me because I'm a woman? And I said, absolutely not. California is not like that. California is going to vote for who the best person is. It's not because well, you can't have two women following each other, which in itself is just ridiculous. You think you had a hundred men follow each other and now you're complaining. You have two women following each other and it's the end of the world. <laughs> it's crazy thinking. So we had that to uh, deal with about, you know, well, there's just too much estrogen. The other issue was because we're two women, if we were attending another national meeting and naturally we would be with each other walking through the halls and, and, you know, as we're going from place to place, then comments would come up that, you know, well, you all stay together because you're women, which is ridiculous because look at all the present past presidents that, you know, the, the president, president like we're all walking around together, but it's not, not a big issue, but because we're two women walking around all of a sudden it was an issue and it was certainly not a lack of security. You know, you know we were not insecure at all, but it's just weird. I, I thought, well, where's that coming from? That's crazy. <laughs> is there an awareness so it sounds as if there's not an awareness of the impact that these words are having on other people. You know, I'm not pointing fingers, but what I'm saying is that, you know, we are so good at teaching our children. We're so good at teaching our young men, you know, how to be careful with what they say and, and not to bully. But quite honestly, when you think about it, it's just an, an adult form of bullying. Yes. But so I, my best advice to women is, you know, to not storm off in the huff or anything. Yeah. My best advice is just smile through it. You have to smile through it and then you have to be successful. That's the best revenge of, of all. So here's an example of something that happened as a trustee. Then we have a final, uh, final dinner and I won't name names, but Clearly, I was running against somebody else, and one of the trustees got got in front when they were of uh, the crowd, and, and they're, they're saying goodbyes to the senior trustees. And one trustee said, "And Carol, we're really going to miss you next year." <laughs> and the implication was, "You'll never win." Exactly. So I just put a big smile on it. I'm like, yep, I know what you're saying. And luckily, one of my other friends who was trustee goes, well, I know I'm going to miss one of them next year. <laughs> and we all start laughing. But I think laughter is the best. And um, and your best revenge is winning. So you can't let that, you know, make you insecure. And you can't fall back or stop moving forward just because somebody said something totally agree. so you know there i think that there has been a huge change in the house of delegates with the average age is as much higher you know than our normal population of dentists what has made a big change are the male dentists who have female daughters who are dentists now that's made a huge change in their perception of women because of course they want their daughters to be successful but I, I knew when I was running that there would be a number of male dentists because of the way they were brought up, that, you know, their wives were over there to support them, that the men was supposed to be the professional, that no matter what, I was never going to get their vote. And so I didn't think it was evil. It wasn't because of me. It was just how they had been brought up. And some of the men came up afterwards 
who I knew who didn't, didn't support me or vote for me. And they say, well, we just thought you were too weak. <laughs> so, so that, that is something that women may find that they are confronted with where male leaders won't think that they are strong enough. So comment by another female uh, leader who, uh, who I've known for a long time would say, never confuse kindness with weakness. Mm. So that's something to remember. You know, you can be kind and you can be smart, but you're, that doesn't mean you're weak. And I think women are, are more strong than they can imagine because of things that you have to you know, confront is, as a woman, mother, daughter. So there will be a, a number of men that they just can't support you for whatever reasons. And you just have to accept that and know that you're not going to get 100%. But I was pretty happy with the outcome. So you, you did a phenomenal job. It was a great year. And it was, it was, you know, from the audience and being in the audience and meeting you along the way, just the fact that you and Maxine were up there was just such a joy to all of us saying, well, finally, somebody's up on the podium that represents what we look like, right? And I, I will say that I, I certainly hope that we start to see more and more because, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but our incoming class this year, 64% female. So the trend is continuing to go up and up and up. And I just heard a, a very interesting statistic that in veterinary schools across the country, that it's at 85%. Yes. I think it still has to be intentional. You know, we really have to focus on building women leaders for whatever reasons, women are more uh, likely if confronted with something that's negative to just say, well, and in fact, I, a good friend of mine said this when she, she came up against a wall in, um, in our state and she goes, you know, I have a good life. I have a lot of other things I'm interested in. I don't really need this. And then they fall away. And I think that there's a lot of that that is happening at the national level that prevents women from moving up. I do have concerns if we don't start to reflect, you know, our, our membership, it, that it will be a problem for the association if we don't get women to move forward. So we, so all of us, all of the women leaders have to, we have to keep looking out for women that have potential to move up and we have to encourage them and keep encouraging and keep encouraging them, you know, so plant the seeds so that they will move up. Otherwise I would be very worried for the future of the association. It's challenged by it for a number of reasons, but if women don't join, for instance, if there's a married couple, husband and wife, a lot of times the wife doesn't join in lots of, in many parts of the world, Women are the majority of dentists they're practicing. Japan is a good example. There are more women dentists than males, and yet they have very few women in leadership. I'm not sure about Germany, but in Europe, many, many of those countries like Russia, it's mostly women that are practicing, and yet they're not in leadership positions. So that does concern me. What, why is that, that they're not being allowed to move forward? In Germany, there are no women that are at the highest levels of the organization. And then in the 10 years that I've been involved with the international groups, there's never been a woman. You know, that just so, so amazing to me that, that there's, you know, because I feel like, you know, we're finally making headway, but I feel like it's taken a long time. It's taken my entire career. 
And I, I'm like shocked that it's even, even that much further behind in other places. I, I just find that amazing to hear. And I, that's one, one thing that was brought out through the diversity uh, or, or I guess diversity and inclusion uh, committee at the American Dental Association. What we realized was people just think, well, as we get more women, it's just going to take care of itself. That is definitely not the case. And it has to be intentional. As soon as you take your eye off of it, then we start to move backwards again. So it's really important that um, we look at that it, and we, we have to keep focused on it. Otherwise we won't have leaders that we need. One area that, that there has been significant improvement is faculties at dental schools. And I'm sure that you're aware of that. I'm just seeing, you know, more and more women that are in are the, the head of their departments and, and taking those positions, which I think is really excellent to have women mentors, because when I was in school, we only had two women teachers. So that made a huge difference. We, we actually have um, five women in leadership positions at Tufts and Hugh Thomas made a, a huge impact on that when he was here with us. So, you know, he was a very big proponent of you know, see more women in leadership roles because they were underrepresented and the, the classes just keep getting larger and larger and larger and female. So, you know, he took measures to make sure that that happened. So it was really good. And I benefited obviously from that. So. Oh, it's great that you're there in the position that you're in. Yeah. And doing podcasts like this. I'm really happy about it. So tell me one thing that people would be surprised to know about you. Most people don't realize that I am an introvert through and through. So I would joke around that I'm an applied extrovert, but I'm very much an introvert. So I have to force myself to do a lot of things that I had to do, especially in, in the public eye, because for introverts, when you're in the public, it just takes all the energy from you. So it had to, I had to rest a lot and just understand, you know, how I needed to get my energy by having more private time, but people are always surprised. And if we do those exercises in a, in a group, I'm always like extreme introvert. I was very shy when I was young. So it's something I think that surprises a lot of people. Yeah, I definitely am surprised by that. So it's good to know that. And I think that, you know, you set a good example for our younger women, because that is something that you do have to overcome. And it is possible to overcome it. You talked a little bit earlier about failures and how important they are in our careers. And so I, I thought it might be a good time to elaborate on that. Has something happened as an obstacle occurred in your career that you had to overcome that you know challenged you in some way, shape, or form that you wanted to share? Well, some of those, those what seemed like early failures in practice and, and well, this is an extreme example of what happened for the, the practice that I had set up for the immigrants from, from Southeast Asia was going very well and until Unfortunately, I had hired an associate who was not ethical and I didn't realize that he was unethical until the, a complaint was filed to the medical office. And unfortunately, he had left the practice by that time and had actually stolen a lot of the records from the practice. And by the time I got the complaint, 
I was completely shut down. So when the complaint came through and I, and I, it's my fault. I was just in the process. I was on a honeymoon. I came back. He had doubled the production of the office because he was built. He had the staff billing for four different restorations on one tooth, whether they needed it or not. It, it was really horrible. And I, I just didn't realize it because I wasn't reviewing records. So he, he was significantly doing things that were unethical since it was my license, my practice, they ceased to pay me. They said, we will not pay you any further. You cannot treat Medi-Cal patients. And I said, I would, and, and they were surprised. They said, we don't have this problem with women. And so I said, if you follow, just follow this particular doctor, I think you'll find that that's where the problem is. But at that point they said, no, we, we will not pay you anymore. And I almost went bankrupt at that point because I had this practice that now I wasn't going to get paid on and all the, all, and I had already paid out all the to the associates and, and staff. So that was, you know, one of those ones that you think, Oh, you know, well, I, I've just got to keep moving forward. I've got to do something. I sold the, you know, the space to a Vietnamese dentist at that point. So that worked because we had Vietnamese dentists and I had to find a new place to get established. So that's another one of those. You just have to learn. Tough and, lesson. It was really tough and, and just lots of different things. I, since I was under pressure to have to get a new loan to go to another office, I trusted people to help me get a loan. And I'm young, I don't know anything. When I went to go sign, finally sign the papers for the loan, the, the fellow that was helping me took an $8,000 fee. I didn't know until I went to sign the papers. He had introduced me to this, to this other associate of his that, that had told me I have to get life insurance or I had to buy some sort of insurance policy because, you know, to protect the loan. And then he had never disclosed that he was going to take such a huge fee, but I was stuck. I had, I had no choice. So those are the were early lessons and early failures that were really tough. But once I got into a, a study group and I started working with consultants and redirected, you know, I understood more about negotiations and, and looking at contracts. And she put me on a path to um, attending uh, more advanced dental education courses. That's how I went on to, to study with the Panky Institute, Dawson Institute, Frank Spear, John Coyce, which made all the difference in the world and understanding the business part of practice helped me to have the practice you know, of my dreams. It was amazing toward the end. It was really great, but um, you just have to just keep going, just learning, learn from your mistakes and it happens. I mean, a failed marriage is a failure. You know, I, it was really tough. And even, and even though we were friends, it just wasn't going to work out. So, you know, knowing that early, but I still felt awful about it because it was really my fault. I thought ah, I shouldn't have gotten married. I don't know why I did that. So, so it was friendly, but still it's a failure. So you, luckily this one has lasted a little bit longer. I think we're at 37 years. So we're okay. You're okay. So I, I, I look at failure, not as a disappointment. I always look at failure as a way not to do something. And as an ex learning experience that's that I, I use to say, okay, I'm not going to do that again, but what did I learn from this that I can take with me as I move forward? Because I want to learn why my actions didn't work out the way I anticipated. And then what can I do to prevent that from happening again? 
Exactly. Exactly. So if you, you have to look at it as a learning experience, some are much more expensive than others. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I love the quote that failure is not final. No, it isn't. It's just part of life. So failure is not final. You got to just move on. You got to just move on. So do you have a personal motto or mantra that you live by? Well, that was one of them and failure is not an option. So <laughs> it's not an option Perfect. and it's not final. So, so, um, no, I, I think what I carry with me is that anything still, anything is possible. So that just goes back to my father and, and being optimistic about things. And, and when things are not going so well, it's really important to sort of step out of that environment, step away from it and realize how fortunate you are. And I, and there's so much in this country that we take for granted that, just by traveling, you realize, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to complain about. And yet, why do we complain so much? You could go to countries that are where they have such high poverty, and yet they often look happier than we are. So, you know, why is that? So I think it's important to step out of that. And it's hard. I, as I'm transitioning, you know, out of such a busy schedule of practice and organized dentistry, I'm really looking to this next phase in my life and what is that going to be? So I'm, I'm sort of in that new area that I haven't experienced uh, in a really long time, probably since I was in high school about, you know, okay, what's my next goal? What, what, what will that be? You know, and how can I make and it? Maybe you don't need another goal. Maybe you, you know, you need a new hobby or something. A goal. A, well, I just took up golf. I'm terrible at it. So. That's okay. so I was, I, I actually was on a golf course for the first time in my whole life last week. I just, I did nine holes. So that was something new. <laughs> there you go. And, and, and that, what a wonderful thing to be doing. I can't wait to pick up my camera again. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm looking forward to. You're more talented than I am. I, I, <laughs> I don't know about that, but I do have, I think an eye for staging things and seeing things that other people might not see. And I've always been fascinated by that. Like, why is it that people just walk by that? Look at that, you know, look, look up or, you know, any, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm saying all the time, like, oh my God, look up because we miss that because we're always looking down, right. Or looking at these silly things instead of looking at the world around us and seeing what's, what's there. There's so much to see and so much, you know, I find beauty everywhere, you know, flowers blooming and bee buzzing, you know, just, just little things like that, that you can capture in a picture that, you know, just makes me smile, makes other people smile, you know? Well, and the fact that you can share it with people. Yeah, exactly. I enjoy every day, try to enjoy the sunset. You know, I think taking a moment just to enjoy it because so often people don't, you know, so busy just doing things and don't take a moment just to, to enjoy it. So um, new goals to be made. I haven't figured it out yet. But I think that's a wonderful place to be. So congratulations. I, I do have to end our show because it, we've gone a little bit longer than an hour. And obviously the audience, it takes a long time to listen to these. So I want to thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart. You've shared some great insights into, you know, what it has taken to get from where you are to where you went in your career. And I can't thank you enough for that. Oh, thank you for asking. And thank you for doing this for women dentists and I think it's invaluable. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.